0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Before we get into the, the message itself, a few other kind of introductory thoughts here. Um, so, starting next week, we're going to launch into this Life of David series. And so that series is going to carry us all the way up until December where we'll do our advent series leading up to Christmas. And so it'll be the biggest series we'll do this year. Uh but today I want to finish up what uh I started in May. It was supposed to be a three-part series and I got through two of them and then I was off the pulpit. And it's it was called Essentials. Uh and as as you might remember from those two messages, some of you weren't even at our church that, that long ago, so you may not even have anything to remember from, but um, the uh, the trigger for this series basically came from, um, basically what it is is a it came from my sabbatical I took last year where I was um, looking through my basement and just, saw all of this junk that I had accrued since we came out of our work in Africa in 2009 and just seeing how much stuff we have. And so during that sabbatical, I ended up throwing out garbage bags filled with all of this stuff, donating just, I think, like five, six bags of clothing that I wasn't ever wearing again uh, to Goodwill. And it was around that same time, interestingly, that I got a notification from Google that uh, my Gmail account had been frozen by them because I had exceeded their capacity. And I, I had no idea Gmail had a capacity, but I guess I hit it, you know? And I realized my inbox was like 28,000 messages or something like that. It was this ridiculous amount. And as, as I looked at my life, uh, there was just this sense that this word clutter was actually very descriptive of not just the possessions that I had, but just the general condition of my life, whether it was the things I owned or my time management or the commitments that were pulling me in every direction. Um, It just seemed like my life could be summarized by that singular word, clutter, clutter. And so from that sabbatical last summer up to now, I've been sort of on this project. It's been slow and methodical, (laughs) And it's still not done yet, but it's been to say, how can I really try to simplify my life to the essence of what is really important? And that's been the journey that I've been on. Um, because it's been so long that I preach those first two messages, I do want to be, do a little bit more of an extended review than I normally would uh, to get everyone sort of up to speed as to what we're talking about. Because what exactly do we mean when we say a life lived for the essentials. Well, I defined it like this in that first message. Living for the essentials means doing with less so that we can live more fully for what matters most in God's eyes. And as I mentioned in that first message, that phrase in God's eyes is key. Because from a Christian perspective, we're, uh, if you could advance the slide, yeah, we're not the ultimate judges of what matters most in life. God is. And so the point of these messages was not working less so that we can spend more time with our family or quitting your job so that, that that the job that you hate so that you can live more fully for the things that you're passionate about. I mean, these are these may be very worthy things to pursue in your life, but that's not what this idea of life in the essentials is about. It's about reprioritizing the things in our life to reflect the things that matter most in God's perspective. Um, And what God cares about most is that our lives would display his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That may mean working less so that you can spend more time with your family. But it also may mean that you forego your family vacation this summer so that you could use that money to support a missionary. Living a life for the essentials means that we're constantly asking ourselves, how can I most glorify God through my life choices? And so the determination of whether we have lived a worthwhile or a wasted life isn't up to us. It's ultimately God's judgment. Passage that we looked at back then, 1 Corinthians three, eleven 11-15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that our life's work will one day be tested by God. And on the basis of that evaluation will be tested. Did your life build on the foundation that was laid by Jesus for you? The second aspect of this definition was doing with less. That's the other part that I really want to highlight. I don't think it's possible to live a life that really matters in the eyes of God without the difficult process of shedding off the things that hinder us from living that life. In other words, hard choices have to be made. If we try to make everything a priority in our life, then nothing is a priority. The writer of Hebrews compares this mindset of shedding off the lesser things with a runner running a race. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Notice that he makes a distinction between sin and things that hinder. Of course, the obvious thing is we should shut off sin if it is causing us to stumble in our race for God. But he adds to that there are things in your life that are not necessarily sin, but that still can pose a hindrance. They can even be good things. They can even be very good things but they may nevertheless keep you from running full on the race that God has set for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, we're not just talking about managing limited resources here. We're talking about the fact that when we talk about clutter in our lives, there are many things that can sink They're hooks into our heart. Paul is saying, I'm not going to let anything master me because I have one master alone in my life, and it is God. And so when we talk about shedding things off, it is also about not letting things control me, not letting things have a controlling power over my life so that they consume me that they become obsessions and addictions in my life. And after a while, what I realize is I'm really living for these things and not for God anymore. The things that were once casual interests in my life have now become consuming passions, and it's all that I'm living for. Greg McCallum says this, the way of the essentialist isn't about setting New Year's resolutions to say no more or about pruning your inbox or about mastering some new strategy and time management. It is about pausing constantly to ask, am I investing in the right activities? There are far more activities and opportunities in the world than we have time and resources to invest in. And although many of them may be good or even very good, the fact is that most are trivial and few are vital. The way of the essentialist involves learning to tell the difference learning to filter through all those options and selecting only those that are truly essential. The overwhelming overwhelming reality is we live in a world where almost everything is worthless and a very few things are exceptionally valuable. As John Maxwell has written, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. I love that line. You cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. In other words, there are so many things that have so little value in the eternal perspective, but can totally consume our hearts. Now, even as I shared in that first message, I share these words cautiously, because if you take this kind of principle to an extreme, then basically you can write off any sense of leisure or the arts, or anything that looks like it doesn't have some pragmatic value. And I don't think that that's what we're talking about here. There are places to enjoy the arts and enjoy a great evening with friends, a nice night out at a restaurant and watch a show afterward. These are not anti-Christian things, but we're talking about can these things derail us from the things that matter most to God's heart? So I took that basic principle in that first message, and I applied it to the area of possessions. We looked at this passage, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That phrase, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, I think is really interesting. What Jesus is describing is is he's warning us that there is a very real danger of becoming so consumed with owning things that after a while that basically defines your existence. That's basically the sum of your life are the things you own. Possessions aren't evil per se, but what is so dangerous about this constant pursuit after possessions is that they can eventually take control of our hearts. And after a while, that's all we're living for. In the next message, I applied this essentialist principle to the issue of time. Barbara McCain says the reason most major goals are not achieved is that we spend our time doing second things first. Second things first. In other words, the goal isn't to try to fit more things into an already busy schedule, but to do the right things at the right time in your life. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 to 17 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And as I shared in that second message, the particular word that Paul uses for time is the word kairos. That is a specifically appointed time when God has designated something to be done. That's why often in English Bibles it's translated as a season or an opportunity. And so what really what the message of this, these verses are to see is recognize what is in front of you at this moment in your life, this season of your life and understand what the opportunity is that God has opened up for you have the wisdom to recognize what the proper, wise, godly investment is of your time in this season of your life. You know, on Friday, Pastor Peter and I went to um, attend this Read to Learn training program that we've been talking about a lot in our church Um, for, uh, man, it was all day, like 8.30 until 4.00. Uh, with 30-minute lunch break. Who gives a 30-minute lunch break, you know? I think had to cram all this stuff in. And I thought, like, you know, I, I'm not, not nearly as far in this sermon as I need to be. And do I have the luxury to give up a whole day to attend this adult literacy program? But as I shared during that mid-year meeting at the end of July, this has been a burning conviction in my heart, is that as a pastor, I find myself so often in just this Christian world, in this Christian bubble. And it feels like the only interactions I have with people practically are other Christians. It's so one of the things that God is laying in my heart is Steve, you need to get out there. You need to get out there beyond the world of the church and show my love to others who don't know me. And so even as I was going through the summer this weirdest feeling started creeping up during this whole training session was I kept wondering who I'm going to be paired up with you know it was this weird like butterflies like it's like a blind date or something you know it's going to wait to meet this person that I'm going to teach English to because what they shared was that quite often when you get these pairings that relationship could last for years you know and I was like man I wonder who I'm going to get to be able to spend these next few years with that I don't even know But it's this message that in God's appointed time, there are seasons. And in that season, God has something for you, something that he wants you to walk in and accomplish for his purposes. Well, today I want to finish off the series by applying this essentialism principle to our relationships. Our relationships. And in doing so, I, I want to kind of frame it a little bit differently. I think this idea of doing with less so that we can do more for what matters in God's eyes is basically the principle of stewardship, isn't it? It's the principle of stewardship. I think one of the best definitions I've ever heard of stewardship is this. It is using God-given resources to accomplish God's purposes in our life. Using God-given resources to accomplish God's purposes in our life. That's stewardship. It basically acknowledges that whatever I have in my life didn't originate from me. They're God-given gifts. And it also includes in that definition the sense that and they were entrusted to me as a steward so that I could utilize those gifts, those blessings, for the benefit of others or for whatever else that God intended to use those giftings for. And I think this concept of stewardship makes sense to us when we think about things like our finances or our time. But I think it becomes a lot more confusing when we try to apply the stewardship principles to relationships. For one thing, I don't think that most of us think of relationships the same way we think of money or time. I don't think we think of relationships as resources that have been entrusted to us by God. I suspect that very few of us in this room have ever asked, what is the purpose of the relationships that I have in my life? What is their purpose? Or maybe more importantly, what is God's purpose? Because truthfully, our relationships just don't seem that intentional to us the relationships that exist in our life just seem largely random to us as a result of other choices we've made, of the neighborhood that we chose to move into, and the school that our children go to, and the company that we work for for our career, or the church that we decided to attend. The last thing I want to say about relationships that makes this whole concept of stewardship foreign to us is this. I think if we're really honest, most of us are pretty intensely self-centered when it comes to relationships, aren't we? The truth is, I think even as Christians, we're always kind of working the angles of what do I get out of this relationship? What's in it for me? How do I benefit from this person in my life? I mean, I see this attitude all the time when I do marriage counseling, you know? I mean, that's the cause of so many marital difficulties is it happens eventually when one or the both spouses basically says, I don't think I'm getting enough out of this relationship. I don't feel my spouse is doing enough for me. But I believe that just as we need to steward our money and our time, we also need to be stewards of our relationships. And I think the place we need to start and trying to explore this is to ask ourselves, what is God's purpose in this relationship? What is God's purpose in this relationship that exists in my life? Or another way that we could phrase it is to ask the question, why did God bring this person into my life? Why did God bring this person into my life? What role is God asking me to play? in this person's life? Now, truthfully, there are many ways to approach an answer to this question. And there are ones that are very obvious to us. If you're a teacher and you're looking in your classroom and you see your students, well, duh, you're there to teach these kids. If you're a manager in a department in your work and you've got a team, then your job is to lead that team. Okay? There's a lot of ways that we could answer this these questions. But from a Christian perspective, and when we talk about essentialism, what I want to say is this. If we were to strip to the core every relationship, and I mean every, every relationship that exists in your life today, I would say the Christian perspective has to land in the singular word, love. Love. That is God's purpose in every single relationship that is in your life in other words God has brought every person into your life so that you can show them his love if you were to reduce every relationship that exists in your life into what is God's core agenda here what is it that he is trying to achieve through me into this person's life it would be love it would be love 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The Bible is filled with these commands for Christians to love one another. That is a first priority, is that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we must love pay this continual debt of love to one another. In fact, what John is saying here is love is so central to God's identity and our own identity that if you lack this hallmark in your life, then it calls into serious question whether your faith is real. Because as John says, because God is love. God is love. The defining quality of the God that we worship is love. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first command. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. What Jesus says is reduced to the very essence of everything that the word of God teaches you are these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. That is the entire summary of the Bible in one sentence. Love God and love your neighbor. In other words, not just your fellow Christians who are in your same club, your same church, your same social circles. But that parable of the Good Samaritan illustrated so powerfully, when Jesus says your neighbor, he is saying everyone, even the people that you think are least deserving of God's love, that is your neighbor. That is our calling. That is every relationship in your life stripped to its bare essence and viewed from the lens of God. How are you loving this person? In her book, Reclaiming Conversation, Sherry Turkle makes this very interesting observation. It takes about seven minutes of any conversation that you have with somebody before you kind of hit a wall. And in those seven minutes, you know, you, you kind of talk through everything. Weather, the bears, politics, mutual friends. And it, can, it, it usually takes the average person about seven minutes. But then she says something interesting. She says, at about the seven-minute mark, for most people, you hit this moment of awkward silence. <laughs> where you've run out of things to say and you don't know what to say anymore. And it's usually at this moment that she says one of two things usually happens. Either you break off the conversation and you try to get out of it and walk the other way. Or especially in our day, what's become much more common is you pull out your phone and you check that Phantom text that you just didn't get. <laughs> and then you excuse yourself. But what Turkle also says is this it's also at that seven minute mark that an interesting moment of opportunity arises when one or both people can take a risk and become vulnerable. And try taking the conversation, and maybe even the relationship, to a whole new level. To a place that actually feels very frightening to you. Sherry Turkle writes, face-to-face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen. It's where we develop the capacity for empathy. It's where we experience the joy of being heard, of being understood. But these days, we find ways around conversation. We hide from each other, even as we're constantly connected to each other. As Turkle points out, unfortunately, most of us never take that risk and try to bring our relationships into those deeper waters of connection and love that could occur. If only we would do so. Instead, the truth is for the vast majority of us, we stay wading in those shallow waters of superficiality, always keeping our relationships harmless. You know, in Jane Austen's book, Sense and Sensibility, the character Marianne says to her sister Eleanor this interesting line that I think is very perceptive. It's not time or opportunity that is to determine intimacy. It is disposition alone. Seven years would be insufficient to make some people acquainted with each other. And seven days are more than enough for others. Do you hear what Austin is saying? Just because you spend more time with someone doesn't mean that intimacy automatically grows out of that time. I want to ask you this. Have you ever been embarrassed by this experience of having a new coworker get hired in your firm, or your company, and that person in two weeks knows the people in your company better than you did after years of working in that same company? Or maybe that's happened in your neighborhood where a new neighbor moves in, and they're telling you info on your own neighbors that you did not know. I think we've all experienced the embarrassment of something like this intimacy, in other words, doesn't just happen. There has to be an intentional decision on our part to seek this intimacy in relationship with others. In her novel, Under the Net, Iris Murdoch writes something also that I think that is very uh, insightful. I hate solitude, but I'm afraid of intimacy. The company which I need is the company which a pub or a cafe will provide. I have never wanted a communion of souls. It's already hard enough to tell the truth to oneself. In essence, the person in this novel is basically saying, I hate the loneliness I feel. And so I want people around me. But I'm afraid of intimacy, so I don't want them to talk to me (laughs) as they are around me. We can all be in the same room together, each of us doing our own thing, but please don't violate my personal space, right? And truthfully, when I counsel people, I meet a lot of people like that, and many of them are in our church, okay? I think there are a lot of people that are kind of wired this way. Can you understand this sentiment? Is when I'm all alone, I feel very lonely. So I want people around me. It's just I don't want them asking me difficult questions or asking me to go to places that I'm uncomfortable. And I want to say this. In order to love others, we have to take risks because every act of love requires risk. Every act of love requires a risk. I think love truthfully can take on many forms. We need discernment, I think, to know specifically what it would mean to love the people that are in our life right now because that love is not going to look the same to each person for some people in our lives what they may need more than anything right now in this season is simply a comforting presence to let them know that they are not alone for others it may be active words of encouragement and hope in their despair for some it may be shouldering their burdens for them in a tangible way helping them through a hard time Loving someone may even mean counseling them, helping them to see what they cannot see by themselves. And at times that may even require awkward moments of loving confrontation, to have to say some things that that person doesn't want to talk about, doesn't want to deal with in their life. And in almost every one of these cases, there is an element of risk involved. Because the truth is, we're never sure how that person is going to respond to our attempts to love. They can reject us. They can deny that they need any help. They can feel insulted that you're portraying them as needy. There are so many ways it could go wrong. They may say, you're not a close enough friend to be offering this to me. And they may reject us. But I think this is what God asks of us. To break down that wall with others and be the ones who would take that risk and love others who are in our life. I think the Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus cutting through all of the superficial pleasantries, all the small talk, and it just fascinates me how often he creates these socially awkward moments because he just dives deep right in there in the very things that I think people actually don't want to talk about in order to show them his love. In John chapter 4, we find this woman who has structured her entire life in order to avoid intimacy with others, the Samaritan woman. She goes to the town well to draw water at noon. No one goes to the well at noon when the sun is at its hottest. But that's the point. That's the point. She wants to be invisible. She wants to be left alone. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't leave her alone. And so he asked the woman, will you give me a drink? And this is not an interaction that she expects, nor does she welcome it. It's as if she's thinking in her heart, doesn't he get the, clue, get the clue as to why I'm coming here at noon? I don't want to be bothered. I don't want you to talk to me. And so she plays the ethnic card, interestingly, in verse 9. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Jesus isn't thrown off by her attempt to get rid of him. Instead, he leans in even harder and goes even deeper. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she doesn't have a clue what Jesus is talking about. She thinks he's talking about literal water. In a way, you can almost say Jesus took a risk and it kind of blew up in his face. And now there's confusion. (laughs) They don't know what they're talking about to each other. And so finally, still thinking about literal water, she says to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then he drops the bomb. <laughs> in Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> oh, yes, he did. <laughs> If there is one subject that this woman probably did not want to enter into any conversation, let alone a strange Jewish man, it was her love life. Now, we don't know the circumstances of this woman, but she has gone through five husbands, and the man she's living with right now is not even her husband. And what I find is that Jesus gets to the core of her brokenness but he doesn't condemn her for it. And it's getting way too personal for her. And so she tries once again to deflect the conversation to something safer. Verse 19 and 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Let's talk about that for a little while. (laughs) that great controversy between your people and my people because I think that would make really fascinating conversation about now but Jesus' focus cannot be diverted she needs a savior whether she realizes it or not she needs a savior and so verse 25 to 26 the woman said I know that Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes he will explain everything To us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. I am the answer to your brokenness. I am the answer to your shame that causes you to come here at the noonday to avoid every other woman in time and to avoid that gossip. I am the healer of your soul. I am the one that can restore you and give you everything that you long for. What a risk. Jesus took with this woman. But through that risk of showing her love, she became saved that day and came to know the Savior. Robert Frost's poem, The Mending Wall, captures this interesting conversation between two men, two neighbors, who meet at the start of every spring on an appointed day to mend the wall that divides their properties from the damage that the previous winter had done. And the voice of the one that actually speaks in the poem, the author of the poem, kind of wonders out loud to his neighbor, why do we even need this wall? Why do we do this ritual every spring, repairing this wall? Why do we need this wall between us? What is it for? To which the neighbor gruffly answers, good fences make good neighbors. And that's the most famous line in the poem, isn't it? I think every one of you recognize that line. Good fences make good neighbors. But there's actually another line in that poem that has gripped my heart far more than that line. And it's repeated twice in this poem. And it's this line. It's a way that only Robert Frost could put it, too. Something there is that doesn't love a wall <laughs> that wants it down. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. In other words, what Frost is saying is, although all of us put walls up to keep others out, even as we're building these walls in our heart, there is something deep within us that longs for those same walls to be torn down, to be fully known, to be fully exposed, to be fully understood, and to be fully loved and accepted. And that's the simple message I'm bringing to you this morning is when we think about what is essential from the perspective of God of every relationship that exists in my life. It is to show God's love to the people that he has brought into my life. In June, we had our retreat and we invited this man, Jerry Root. Uh, Tito Roderick, I apologize. I didn't ask permission to show your picture there. Can I f- put it up there? Okay. <laughs> all right. Amen. Thank you. Okay. All right. Um, and I, I, I shared this during the Q and A session um, at the closing of the retreat. Um, there was no doubt about it that he he's an amazing public speaker. He's a great preacher. But I think what Jerry Root represented for our church during that weekend was the presence of a man who I think embodied everything that I'm sharing this morning with you, who could not see another human being and not think the first thought in his mind was love, love. I felt it from the first handshake that I had and the many bear hugs he gave me that weekend as well. And I shared this with you it revealed in me my own brokenness because every time I tried to walk by him, I realized I tried to avert my eyes. But his eyes were like on me the whole time. It felt so uncomfortable. And then I, so I felt awkward looking away. So I look at him, and it was like the warmest eyes of love. He's just, just smiling at you, you know, just looking at you. And then sometimes I would walk by, and he would just grab me, and he goes, Steve, you're a great pastor, <laughs> you know, or say, say something like that. And it would just melt my heart, you know. And I, I shared this. At the very end of the retreat, you know, a bunch of us had stayed at the hotel because there wasn't enough room at the retreat center. And uh, this, you know, girl that could have been, must have been just in her 20s was the hotel clerk, and I'd seen her the whole weekend. Really, truthfully, hadn't exchanged more than a few words with her. But uh, when Jerry Root <laughs> went to check out at the front desk, her entire demeanor changed and she had this broad cheek-to-cheek smile on her face and she said, Jerry! And then she said, I missed you! (laughs) Which is the most bizarre thing to hear from a hotel clerk say to somebody who's staying at the hotel, right? I had never heard anyone tell me they missed me (laughs) when I checked out (laughs) at a hotel. But that was just Jerry, right? That was just Jerry. He loved everyone that he came in contact with. If there was one thing Jerry wanted you to know when he met you is that there is a God in heaven who loves you. We're going to go into communion here in just a minute here, and um, as we think about this whole essentialism series. <clears throat> I want to challenge you that it's sort of possible to get to the end of your life and at the end of your life to discover that you haven't actually really lived at all. And that, I think, has got to be one of the saddest discoveries of any person in their life. Is in the midst of all of the busyness and places you've gone and people you've met, you just sort of glided through life in the shallows. And you may discover you have never really lived. At the end of Paul's life, he writes to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6-7. to seven, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. My sincere hope is that every one of us on our deathbed can echo that same confession that Paul gave. Let's pray. As we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, I just want to invite you to just a couple minutes of quiet reflection and think about your life. I think there's so many false things that we do in our life to give ourselves a sense of importance, a sense of meaning. We do it by making ourselves busy, and uh, doing a lot of activities. We do it by shopping. <laughs> we buy a lot of stuff. And so the house we own, the car we drive, the clothes we wear, the little gadgets and toys that we show off on social media, and the restaurants that we eat in, All of these are just our desperate attempts to say, my life has meaning, I'm important, I'm somebody. And we can also glide through life with so many relationships and yet touch nobody. Yeah, you're that nice guy that works in that corner desk, but the truth is you've never taken a risk to actually try to love somebody. You always play it safe. And just to be known as the nice guy or the nice gal is good enough for you. But can I challenge you that maybe God has so much more for you than this in his plan? That in every relationship, his desire is that you would make a lasting impact, a lasting imprint on the people that are in your life. That how you spend your money, how you allocate your time, how you manage relationships, that if you would allow God to transform those things, that ultimately what would result is a transformed life and the transformed lives of many people that you can touch in his name. My hope and prayer for all of us here at ICC is that that's the life that we would embrace, of stripping away all that is worthless, things that are not ultimately worthless, valuable in the eyes of god and with laser focus committing ourselves to the things of eternal value the things that matter most in the heart of god we just pray that for a couple minutes and our worship team is going to lead us in a song of response and then after that we'll come and take the lord's table